people will talk about chef or they'll talk about lime uh, uh, or all of these like very specific techniques which disconnects it from the larger picture and and not just the larger picture from the ai life cycle which is the the technical aspect of things but also from how does this fit within your organization so whose job is it to make sure that ai is used ethically and how do we bridge that gap from big statements of principles to the everyday work of engineers and data scientists Welcome to Data Science Mixer, a podcast featuring top experts in lively and informative conversations that will change the way you do data science. I'm Susan Curry Civic, the data science journalist for the Alteryx community. I'm thrilled to be joined by Abhishek Gupta for a chat about these important issues of AI ethics. We discuss how to take ethical principles out of the realm of philosophy and into the everyday work and structure of organizations. He's addressed this topic in his upcoming book, Actionable AI Ethics, and we're excited to share his insights and recommendations with you. Let's dive in. Could you give us a little introduction of yourself, your name, where you're currently working, and if you don't mind telling us the pronouns that you use? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I'm Abhishek Gupta. I, uh, you know, born and raised in India, uh, moved to Montreal 2012 to study uh, computer science at McGill, graduated, did a stint at Ericsson doing cybersecurity and machine learning, realized that I had a greater passion for machine learning than I did for cybersecurity and subsequently moved to Microsoft where I am currently, uh, where I uh, work on a team called Commercial Software Engineering where I do machine learning full-time. And in addition to that, I serve as the responsible AI board member for my organization, which means that I get to touch on issues of ethical AI, uh, guiding our internal teams on how to uh, implement some of these ideas in practice, which of course is a, um, you know, I guess as we'll get a chance to go into it, uh, a huge thing for me. It's, yeah. it's been an important part of my life. And, and of course, uh, I, I uh, co-founded the uh, Montreal AI Ethics Institute, which is an international nonprofit research institute that is focused on democratizing AI ethics literacy. We do that through various mechanisms, including fundamental research, community outreach, uh, and uh, uh, translating complex knowledge into things that are digestible for the lay audience. Excellent. Yeah, with well, such an important topic, it's wonderful that you're doing that kind of outreach to make sure that people can understand what's going on behind the scenes. Yeah. Very cool. And, uh, and, and yes, you asked, uh, my pronouns are he and him. Okay, terrific. Thank you. Yeah. So as you know, on Data Science Mixer, one of the things that we like to do is try to have maybe a, a happy hour type snack or drink or coffee or tea or something while we're chatting. So are you having anything special there with you? <laughs> um, hydrating. I think, you know, hydration is important. <laughs> so just water. Uh, it's it's awesome. uh, late in the evening for me. So, so caffeine is out of the picture. You know, uh, I like to get a good night's sleep. Anything after 2 p.m. doesn't really work. <laughs> <laughs> I'm with you there. My cutoff is noon. So yeah, I'm, I'm a lightweight when it comes to the caffeine. So I'm, it's 7 a.m. for me right now. So I am having some nice Earl Grey, which is very exciting. Good deal. All right. Well, we are, we are well hydrated and caffeinated when appropriate. So we can start chatting. Terrific. So um, you told us a little bit about your, your career path and how you got interested in AI ethics. What was it specifically that drew you to that area? Was there some particular experience that you had or something you worked on that, that you're comfortable talking about that uh, made you especially interested in AI ethics as an important issue? 
Yeah, so uh, it it all began, I think, with um, uh, my attendance at the AI for Good Global Summit in Geneva. So the inaugural summit that happened in 2017 uh, was put together by the ITU, uh, you know, the the, uh, the UN agency. And what was fascinating was this was one year prior to uh, the launch of the GDPR, right? So conversations in Europe around privacy, especially, were quite uh, mature well-articulated, were quite strong in their voice. And what was interesting was that uh, I realized very quickly when I was there that it was going to be an important issue, not just from a GDPR perspective because of my work doing cybersecurity at Ericsson, but also the machine learning side of things where I started to see how uh, this inclination to soak up as much data as possible to you know, build more and more accurate systems meant that it would have privacy implications. And it wasn't a realization that you know, others hadn't had, but at least for, for me personally, it was something that I got more interested in and wanted to have more conversations around. And coming back to Canada, what I realized was that the conversations were quite fragmented, actually. So uh, they were happening in silos and, and they were quite sporadic. And there wasn't really a national unified sort of focus on that. And, and so I took it upon myself, uh, having a little bit of an entrepreneurial streak myself, I guess, uh, to, to bring the community together because I noticed two things that were happening. There were uh, these sort of uh, barriers, both self-erected and uh, those erected by others, which hindered participation from people uh, that came from non-traditional backgrounds. So people who, you know, say, didn't have a PhD in machine learning or who didn't have wanted academic credentials were typically not allowed to be a part of the conversation. And, and what I, you know, in speaking with some folks as I was getting started with this initiative, which started off really with a few people in a room back in 2017, um, was that people from other, other fields have had a lot to offer. And uh, it, you know, when I think back to it, I think the first real, you know, um, uh, driver for me was speaking to someone from the field of bioethics and how they thought about the ideas of informed consent and how they went about doing that, how they went about you know, tackling some of the ethical issues when, it arise, when they arise in the medical sciences was what uh, made me realize that these problems are, are you know, at their foundation, they're, they're the same and they've been experienced in other fields and there's a rich body of literature and practice where people have tried to solve these issues, and they're just now being expressed in the field of AI in a different form. And so, so there is a lot to be learned from that. And, and so that's sort of how, uh, you know, at least my journey began in the sense of uh, bringing together uh, people. So it's, it's really been about community for me in terms of kickstarting my work in this space, because I realized that uh, there is so much to learn from other people, and we don't have to reinvent the wheel. I mean, why not stand on the shoulders of giants already? Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. I love the the way that you expressed your entrepreneurial spirit in pulling together this community and and recognizing the interdisciplinary nature of the problems that you're facing and the the value of using some of those existing insights that are already out there. That's very cool. So your book, which is coming out either end of this year or early next year, is titled Actionable AI Ethics. I think it's really interesting that, you know, pulling together this community, drawing on those interdisciplinary perspectives, you have this really strong focus on let's take those things and take action, right? And actually do some things that have an impact on the world. So why has that been such a strong focus for you in your career, this idea of, of finding actionable paths forward? So I think... 
um, you know, one, I would say I have an engineer's bias because I'm an engineer. And, and I mean that, uh, you know, not, not, in, not in a bad way that, uh, you know, I don't see these as socio-technical problems because I do. And, and, and that's, you know, a huge part of my work. But I mean it in the way that if you go out and do a quick search, even for, you know, responsible AI principles or guidelines and all of these things, there are literally more than 100 documents that talk about that, right? I mean, you can go to the OECD AI Policy Observatory and you'll see more than 100 documents. You'll see guidelines coming out from corporations, um, et cetera. And, and I think in, in my observation, we've arrived at a sort of universal consensus on what are the key things that we want to be focusing on, right? And, and what that means is that now it, it really should come down to us trying out these ideas and practice because what I've observed speaking to, you know, folks who worked at startups, folks who worked at other large organizations, of course, observing the work internally at Microsoft. And, and what I've seen is that a lot of these ideas, while great in theory, when it comes to practice, need a bit more nuance for them to be uh, really applicable. And right. I, I feel that there is this gap between theory and practice at the moment where we come up with all these great ideas in terms of, you know, bias mitigation or applying even, let's say, differentially private analyses in practice. And what are the real trade-offs that happen when we try to put those techniques uh, in play? And, and the kind of guidance that we provide at a very high level seems to have sort of settled, as I was saying, in terms of, you know, a uni sort of universal consensus. But when it comes to actually deploying it in practice, the the level of granularity that engineers need, uh, especially when they don't have prior formal training or experience in the field of ethics or um, in the social sciences, it's a real struggle. And, and I'm sure the listeners will agree that, uh, uh, you know, when you're on a, a business deadline or a project deadline, you don't necessarily have all the time in the world to go out and search for different kinds of literature and, and see what's the state of the art, especially on this side of things, because unfortunately at the moment, this is something that's seen secondary to, to the primary sort of business objectives of, yeah, we, you know, we got to uh, we got to build a product that, you know, delivers value X, Y, and Z to our customers. And the ethical aspects aren't necessarily included as a, as a core value offering, let's say. So, so I think, I think that's, that's one of the things that's been a problem. So, you know, hence the focus on, on, on it being actionable. Also, this just overwhelming amount of information, I think, creates a deterrent for anyone to try and do something, right? It's a little bit like, you know, trying to go on a diet, let's say. If, if someone throws 25 different diets at you, <laughs> you're confused, right? You, you don't know where mm -hmm. to start versus someone. It's, it's, you know, Barry Schwartz's paradox of choice, right? The, the fewer and, and more carefully thought out choices you provide, the higher the likelihood that you actually go out and do something with it rather mm -hmm. than just uh, sort of uh, keep mulling about and thinking about what is it that I should do? Because I think, I think we've largely settled on at a high level what we should be doing. And now it's really a matter of trying it out. Right, right. That's so interesting. And as far as the, the techniques that you mentioned, you mentioned specifically bias mitigation and differential privacy. Um, would you like to talk about one of those in a little bit more detail as far as some of the ways that you see people um, implementing them and actually using actionable AI ethics? 
Yeah. So in fact, you know, I, I, the, the way I like to think about all of these techniques is, is fitting in a, in a, in a larger picture. Right. And, and I, uh, you know, as a part of this actionable AI approach, actionable AI ethics approach, think of it in the, in the ML ops context, because I think, I think that's a natural, um, natural analog in terms of how to think about it, especially when we're thinking about techniques like, you know, bias mitigation, it can be applied at, at several stages of that AI life cycle, right? Same goes with, with you know, differential, differentially private analyses, which can be applied, you know, early on in the life cycle or, or once you've generated the results. And, and again, the, each of these techniques can be applied in, in different parts of the life cycle. And I, I, I really want to encourage that we should be thinking about applying AI ethics in, in a way that is spread out throughout the life cycle and is not just merely, you know, checkbox sticking activity where we say, hey, we, you know, hey, I, I you know, applied bias mitigation, so, so we should be good, right? There's nothing else to be done. And I think perhaps, again, a, a close analog is something like cybersecurity, right? Where if you go back, you know, two, three decades, uh, it, it used to be something that was, a, a, a gate a gating mechanism that happened at the end right same goes even with qa for for software engineering where it used to be something that was done as a gating mechanism uh, at the end of the development life cycle but what we realized was that hey that doesn't really work right we need to start pushing that further upstream and having everybody practice that a little bit more which basically meant that we started to get into places where unit testing became something that's very common. Um, if, we, if we, you know, talk about cybersecurity, uh, secure coding practices was something that became, you know, quite common. So you, you now, as a part of anyone, you know, joining, let's say Microsoft, will, you know, take at least an intro course to understand what are basic secure coding practices, whatever your language of choice, right? C Sharp, Python, you know, whatever else you, you use. And I think that's, uh, that's an important way to look at it. Uh, especially when we're talking about any of these techniques, because the specifics will vary based on whatever uh, domain you're operating in, sure. whether you're working in language or vision or, or time series analyses, uh, whatever, right? The techniques will you know, have slightly different variations and implications, but the, the overarching principle of utilizing that MLOps mindset means that you're being thorough and, and not leaving gaps behind. And the reason I say that especially is uh, one of the fields that I, one of the subfields I should say within AI ethics that doesn't get as much attention is machine learning security. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the most common manifestation of that is using adversarial examples to trigger right, uh, right. misbehavior from the system, let's mm -hmm. say, right? And what's interesting is I think we, uh, at the moment, don't have enough of an emphasis on uh, realizing and acknowledging that machine learning security is sort of the foundational tenet of, of AI ethics, because if, if let's say in, in all good, you know, with all good intentions, you've applied some bias mitigation techniques at the start of the life cycle, uh, you hope that the results won't be as biased as if you had not applied the technique. The use of adversarial examples can, for example, through data poisoning, trigger things that still produce biased outcomes, even after you apply bias mitigation. So, it, it almost renders that whole effort ineffectual just because you didn't think of machine learning security as something that you had to do. And so again, if you if you take that life cycle view, 
you can now see all of these various pieces. So, you know, we're talking about interpretability, we're talking about accountability mechanisms, be those technical or organizational, uh, bias mitigation, privacy, transparency, all of these ideas then fit as pieces of the puzzle in that life cycle, which means that they become mutually reinforcing and, and comprehensive and holistic, leaving behind few gaps versus, again, if we just think of it as a checkbox sticking activity, what we end up doing is leaving behind these residuals in a sense that will come back to bite us at some point later. We don't know when. Right. Yeah. And that's the other thing, right? We, we, we just don't know. And it just, I think, re reduces ultimately trust that we can have in these technologies. And, and trust, again, I think, has, is, is a vague word, uh, you know, has, has a lot of implications. But trust, I'm, I'm, you know, perhaps just even talking about it in a narrower sense from a reliability perspective that, hey, is the system going to perform within, you know, certain boundaries that we expect it to perform? And the, the boundaries shouldn't just be performance boundaries, but should also be boundaries in terms of some of these ethical values, be those bias or, or you know, fairness, et cetera. Right, right. I think that's a really important perspective, this idea of integrating ethical approaches and um, some of these strategies throughout the entire life cycle. It makes me think of you know, developing some sort of slogan like AI ethics is everybody's responsibility and designing some propaganda posters or something so that <laughs> people start thinking of it as integrated throughout rather than just something that, you know, is done by one person somewhere along the way. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting nuance. Exactly. And in fact, you know, uh, as, as you men mentioned that, I think the other thing that we also need to recognize as we're talking about, uh, you know, AI ethics being uh, the responsibility of multiple people is not just to think about this as, um, uh, you know, just allocating that responsibility without having corresponding accountability mechanisms where mm -hmm. otherwise, you know, again, what ends up happening is it's, it's diffusion of responsibility, right? If everybody's responsible, then nobody's responsible right. uh, unless you hold them accountable to it. And, and, and that's why I think, again, having this life cycle perspective uh, is important. And, you know, one of the things that, that has also come up in, in numerous conversations is Yes, there is a lot of focus on, and and it's and it's a little bit bizarre, you know. Perhaps I'm going off, off the track here, but I think what's interesting is that there is perhaps a huge macro focus uh, in terms of yes, we need to think about AI ethics principles, etc. Not providing enough nuance or granularity, and then on the other hand, you have like a hyper focus on specific techniques, right? So you know, people will talk about SHAP or they'll talk about Lime. Uh, uh, or, you know, they'll, uh, they'll talk about all of these like very specific techniques, which I think is, again, uh, a bit of a problem because then that disconnects it from the larger picture. And, and not just the larger picture from the AI lifecycle, which is the, the technical aspect of things, but also from how does this fit within your organization, like from an organizational processes perspective, right? Sure. And, and I think that's where... Uh, at least from the conversations that I've had, I've seen the most amount of failures because if you try to do something that's too orthogonal or counter to existing organizational processes, you'll face a lot of resistance, one. And, and two, just the uptake goes down quite a bit because you yourself might be extremely passionate and, and um, invested in making this happen, but that's not the case with everybody, right? And, and, you know, to each their own, right? Our goal ultimately is to get everybody on board and realize that this is something that's worth doing. Uh, but while that's still not the case, 
uh, we should make it as easy as possible for them to do this, right? Yeah. Because as, as you were saying, that we want to have a lot more people take on this responsibility. It's a little bit like, um, you know, thinking about our environmental duties, right? In terms of being more green. Um, right. If you yeah. make things very hard, people are not going to care as much, right? And um, it's it's a little bit similar when it comes to some of these impacts of AI where developers are, are sort of isolated today unless you're working, let's say, at a small startup or SME or you're in a customer-facing unit, you tend not to see some of the immediate impact, right? And, and there's perhaps even a further disconnect for people doing fundamental research who do some of this work and then it might be used in other ways that they did not anticipate or have not been trained to anticipate. And, and, and that disconnect, both in terms of the immediacy of the impacts and, and the time horizon within which it happens, I think, um, is something that's, you know, that's a bit of a problem there, right? So coming back to it, I think when we're talking about these organizational processes, I think that's that's an important part of how we go about implementing these ideas in practice. And to that end, I would say, I think, you know, the, the processes that we have in Microsoft have been quite cognizant of that in terms of making sure that it's, it's a part of our natural workflows when we're trying to implement these ideas in practice. Uh, you know, to give you an example, and, and perhaps, you know, for those who, who are listening and who are interested, the World Economic Forum uh, actually published a case study uh, on Microsoft's uh, responsible AI practices. Oh, yeah. uh, and, and, you know, uh, I guess uh, observe that I use the word practices and not principles because we've had the principles out for a long, long time, sure. really. But we've been quite heavily invested and focused on our practices to really mm -hmm. bringing this to the forefront. And, um, you know, of course, I can't do it justice in terms of describing everything because there's a lot there. So I would encourage folks to check it out. But what I would say is that we've got, uh, for example, the Office of Responsible AI, whose sole duty is, uh, or whose sole mandate is to put these ideas into practice, integrating them into the existing organizational processes, training material, creating a, a Responsible AI Champs program as an example, where you have these touch points, these contact points for people to go and ask questions within their organization. So people they're already familiar with, rather than having to go and hunt for, well, I have this question, I don't know what to do. Uh, where so, is the ethicist? You know, where is the <laughs> yeah. ethicist and what should I do? Uh, we have these principles. I don't know how to implement them. I got to deliver this project by the end of next week. What now? Yeah. And, and all of these, these are very real things that happen for practitioners out in the field. And I think just being sensitive to, you know, how we as practitioners face these issues in the real world, I think, I think that's the, that's, you know, for the lack of a better word, the empathy that we need to have as we're going about all of these ideas uh, to really make them actionable, to really actually see them be put into practice. Oh, this is such an interesting point. And we'll definitely try to link to that uh, case study that you mentioned in the show notes so that folks can find that. So it seems like a really, really important issue, this, this disconnect between the micro level techniques, like you mentioned, and the larger philosophical principles. Um, but where's that intermediary step of figuring out how to make it work at an organizational level? That seems just super, super important. So definitely something folks will want to think about. Cool. So I want to go actually maybe to that philosophical level for a moment, because I was really interested to read about your work with the Montreal Declaration for Responsible AI Development, which is an awesome name. And I believe that came out in 2017. 
there were some interesting aspects of that that talked about protecting human well-being and ensuring privacy, uh, not causing division and trying to contribute to social equity. So we're four years out from that now. So I'm curious how you reflect on that and what's happened since then. Do you think that we are getting closer to those goals? Are we moving in that direction? You know, I know that's a huge question, but <laughs> any particular aspect of it you'd like to focus on? Yeah, I, I think that's the trillion dollar question, right? In the sense that, you know, people talk about the impact that AI is going to have, you know, and, and it's going to, you know, you can look at all these consulting firms that put out reports that talk about the trillion dollar impact that AI is going to have on the economy. I think it's it's a question of that magnitude in the sense that I was involved in the very early days. In fact, I was involved in the creation of that document when it was just a two page French document. Uh, oh, wow. And I mm -hmm. met up with the creator who, you know, uh, graciously walked me through the French document because, you know, my French is, uh, <laughs> you know, limited in, in its technical fluency, let's say. So, um, you know, sure. we sat through it, we worked through it. And in fact, as a part of the Montreal AI Ethics Institute, uh, we organized seven uh, public consultation sessions that actually fed into the development of that document over time. The goals, I think, are are are, are quite uh, comprehensive in terms of coverage, uh, and and they provide great north stars in terms of what we should be looking for aspirationally. Uh, but I guess you know it, it still uh, falls in that same bucket where uh, all of these ideas are great, but we need a bit more nuance, right? And I think I think the the Montreal Declaration of Responsibility AI does go a little bit further in the sense that for each of these principles, it does provide you some questions to think about, which is a great way to, you know, make that a little bit more concrete. Um, and, and certainly, I would say that if, if one was to be able to answer those questions or achieve adherence to those principles, those would be hallmarks of a, a responsible AI system. Uh, has the field been able to achieve those? For the most part, I would say no, unfortunately, in the sense that uh, again, you know, and, and I, you know, participate in so many conferences and, you know, give a lot of talks and do a lot of panels, etc. I still see that there has been a greater degree of emphasis on debating and refining perhaps some of the nuances around these principles, which are required. Yes, I, I you know, uh, completely um, agree with that aspect. But but also what I would like to see more of is for people to try these ideas out in practice, because a lot of the times when we try something out in practice, we realize that, hey, this doesn't work in its current form and we need to do something different or we need to iterate. Uh, and, and, you know, I think perhaps that's also, you know, I was talking about my, you know, sort of entrepreneurial spirit in a sense that that also is, is, is a mindset that I bring to this in the sense that, uh, you know, when we talk about AI being data-driven, why aren't we being data-driven about some of these ethical AI practices also, or these ethical AI principles? In the sense that let's as an organization talk about, hey, I tried out this, you know, principle set or, you know, set of guidelines. And you know what, X, Y, and Z worked, A, B, and C didn't. Uh, here's what we tried to do to get A, B, and C to work, which led it to become D, E, and F. And guess what? Like we, we kind of get a good degree of adherence to these ideas, but we need to keep refining. And, and I might be wrong, you know, because I'm, I'm just a single person and there's a, only a limited perspective that I would have on the field. But I would encourage folks who are listening in to leave comments and, and, and mention if they've seen case studies like this, which talk about 
people are actually trying these principles out in practice and where, where things have worked, but more importantly, where things have not worked. Because I think that's where we'll get our lessons from, right? That's where we'll mm -hmm. get um, ideas from an operational perspective in terms of um, how any of this is going to really sort of materialize in practice and how this is going to uh, work in practice. And, you know, to me, what's inspiring is, you know, the work that Guillaume uh, Chazlow did, uh, who used to work at YouTube before. Um, and, and, you know, he created this thing called algo transparency. Uh, you know, when we talk about, oh, there are, you know, all these uh, rabbit hole feedback loops, vicious cycles on, on YouTube that lead to a lot of polarization. Okay. Uh, can we, you know, get a bit more, uh, you know, nuance or concreteness in terms of how does that actually materialize in practice? Can I try that out myself uh, so that I can get a sense for where, uh, where and how this actually materializes and, and you, uh, you know, as a tool provider, as whatever, as a researcher, show me um, quite concretely in my context how that manifests itself, right? And algo transparency helps to do that in the context of YouTube, which I think is very interesting because it, it makes the issue a lot more real, right? Again, we're, we don't have a dearth of people today, I would say, talking about these issues. Certainly wasn't the case when we started in 2017, which led me to start all of this um, yeah, uh, in the yeah. first place. But I think, you know, work like that uh, really um, helps to bring some of these um, ideas to the forefront. Another thing that I've seen that has been particularly heartening, I think, is leveraging the power of community, right? In the sense that when we're talking about these ideas, these principles, you know, going back to the genesis of the Montreal AI Ethics Institute, what was interesting was that, you know, it wasn't perhaps a deliberate choice. It was just that I thought that it would be valuable to listen to other members of the community. And, and fast forward to today, of course, you know, a lot of people talk about bringing in community stakeholders. Where does this like lead to concrete results? You know, as an example, uh, you can look at this group called Masakane uh, NLP. And what they're doing is they're utilizing folks from the community who have expertise in, in language, who uh, are NLP practitioners, and bringing them together to create more, uh, you know, well-performing NLP systems for low-resource languages, yeah. right? And so they That's operate awesome. in an African context. And mm -hmm. some of the work that they've done has earned them best paper awards at a lot of the, the NLP conferences, right? And it's a fully community-driven initiative right? Which, which speaks to the value that a diverse community can bring, especially when you're looking at something like low resource languages. There, there are fewer speakers in these languages. The data sets are not as pervasive. So they're working from the ground up trying to address these issues in a manner that leverages the experiences, the capabilities of people from around the world, which also makes it easier to achieve. Because if you were to now hire a team to work on a specific African language, that requires a lot of uh, coordination, requires a lot of effort, money, and all of these things. Whereas this community-led effort has naturally brought people together who are interested in these issues and working them, working on them together. Of course, the people behind that initiative are are to you know be given credit for uh, you know coordinating the activities of that community, but. It just goes to show as a concrete example that it's it's something that's possible. And I think that's what we need to start doing with, with the field of AI ethics as well. If we were to create you know, a community of practitioners who faced real organizational challenges, then we can move from these you know, very uh, lofty principle sets ideas like the declaration into something that's a bit more actionable.
Do you think that the barrier to that happening right now is just in terms of people's capacity and time and ability to engage in those sorts of things? Do you think it's around not wanting to share the things that they're working on or share some of those failures that they might have experienced? What's keeping people from being more engaged in that communal effort, do you think? So my speculation is that I think we just generally have an aversion to failure, right? Mm. And and, yeah. and it's a more <laughs> macro comment than just in the field of AI because we're all chasing that, you know, that state of the art, right? And yeah. nowhere is that more evident than in, in conference publications, right? Where mm. you're, you're just constantly chasing that extra 1% because then, you know, you get a New Europe's paper on your CV or academic record and whatever else that that brings you, right? Which which is dubious in, in my opinion that, that brings For sure. much yeah. value. In fact, what would be interesting and, and to that effect with a few colleagues, we, we organized a workshop at the MLSIS conference, I think two weeks ago now, um, that was titled Journey. And, and the goal of that conference really was how do we think about some of the failures, right? How do we think about some of the uh, some of the ways in which we arrive at these uh, results, right? In the sense that uh, you don't always have a straight path getting to to success, right? It's a meandering path that gets us to the place where we, uh, you know, come up with a state of the art, right? So journey, which basically stands for Journal of Opportunities, Unexpected Limitations, Retrospectives, Negative Results and Experiences. The reason it's a mouthful it. is because uh, <laughs> we wanted to capture that messy, complex journey and embrace that and, 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 you know, provide a platform for people to come out and say, Hey, you know, here are things where we fail that miserably, but here's what we learned. Right. And normalizing sharing a failure, I think is, is so important. And, and, you know, again, I, you know, would encourage folks to check out some of the papers that were published as a part of the that workshop, some of the talks that were given, it was heartening to see some of the, you know, really, really uh, well-respected researchers in the field talk about their journey, talk about where they've experienced failures and, and how that led them to their purpose in terms of what they're pursuing now. And so I think just, you know, normalizing, sharing a failure, in fact, taking pride in our failures. The reason I say taking pride is because it shows to me that you actually tried, yeah. right? Yeah, absolutely. What, what other proof do we have, <laughs> right? Is that I tried and I failed. That's okay. You tried. That's fantastic, right? And I think, I think that's, uh, that's one of the big barriers, I think, in the, in the field today. Yeah, it reminds me of the people who have created kind of the, um, the CV of rejected papers where they list all of the things that they submitted that didn't get published. And they've shared that to say, you know, it's okay. At least I'm out here putting stuff out there and I'm trying, and these things may not have actually found their audience, but at least I'm doing the work. So I think that's a really good point about taking pride in our failures. I'm, I'm going to work on that myself. <laughs> awesome. So one of the other things I was curious about as I was poking around on your website and, and looking at your work, um, I noticed that you have put out to the world an offer to do one-on-one -on -one Ask Me Anything sessions on AI ethics. And I'm curious if you've had folks taking you up on that and if you've had any interesting conversations. Yeah. Uh, in fact, the, uh, the, the response to that has been uh, heartwarming, uh, that people do find uh, value in doing something like that. And um, Awesome. Great. Yeah. And, and the reason uh, for doing that, ask me anything more so than, you know, positioning it as me being, 
you know, an expert or whatever that means, uh, is more so just as a sounding board for sharing what some of your concerns are and then, um, you know, me sharing my experience where I may or may not have experienced something like that and, and some ideas that I have that I think uh, work, uh, which I've seen work, uh, and, and other things which I would really like for some folks to try out and give me feedback yeah. uh, if, if they work. Right. And, you know, I think one of the things that's been interesting that's come out of these conversations is how a lot of the challenges are shared across the types of organizations that you work for, the kind of work that you do and the domain that you operate in. And it, and it was so interesting that this sort of hunch that I had that organizational constraints actually play perhaps a big uh, if not bigger role than some of the other, you know, technical issues, which I think are more tractable, is that that's something that's shared across all of these people where no matter whether you're working at an academic research lab or you're working at a startup where you, know, you don't have that much uh, funding to, you know, invest effort into this, or you're working at a large corporation where you run into, you know, perhaps misalignment of incentives in terms of what should be prioritized, the organizational constraints was something that started to jump out as a as a shared problem which i think is is interesting that uh, it's heartening to see because this is something that has rich literature already right, right? Yeah. in terms yeah. of change management in terms of uh, uh, you know folks have already studied organizational constraints and and the clash that sometimes that has in terms of achieving the mission vision the values or adhering to the values that an organization has so so that's great. Yeah. Uh, the reason that's great is because we can borrow from that, right? So we don't have to, again, start from scratch. And I think that's, again, one of the other things that sort of came out from these conversations is speaking with folks across these artificial boundaries, right? So, uh, you know, take up this conversation around AI ethics, uh, if you're a data scientist, with someone who's, uh, you know, uh, a business executive, right? Someone sure. who's responsible for uh, your business unit and, and have a heart to heart with them in terms of what you think is valuable and what's preventing that from being from from materializing right and in in one of the conversations it was interesting that uh, you know that the person thought that this was something that needs to be addressed more so from a technical perspective and and my advice was well yes i mean of course because ultimately it is a technical endeavor but a lot of these technical measures that we have today, unless you're a fundamental researcher, you're perhaps not going to change the techniques themselves. So you have your pick of you know, various techniques that are available. You take something and you put it into practice. What is more important in your own context is then to talk to the other stakeholders in your organization and then don't hesitate really to speak with people who are in your legal department. How many times do you as a data scientist go and talk to someone who's mm. in the legal department? You don't really, right? Yeah. And neither do they. And, and and it's not just your own comfort. I think it's also our, our own openness uh, to having those conversations. So making the other person feel welcome and not feel, for the lack of a better word, inferior in terms mm. of their own knowledge, mm -hmm. right? A lot of sure. people, and, and it's it's true. I mean, of course, it's a technical field, right? So there are specifics that people don't get. Uh, mm -hmm. which is fine, right? Let's make an effort to 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 extend, uh, quote-unquote, an olive branch and, and explain to them in their vernacular what some of these things are and why some of these problems are surfacing, right? And how are they manifesting? 
in our context and understand from them, right? Hope that they, from a legal perspective, would explain to you um, what the law stipulates, right? I mean, heck, legalese is super complicated, right? Half of the words don't make sense, right? <laughs> right? Uh, and, and how do we make that easier, right? So it's just, I think, it's, it's basics of human communication, yeah. basics of organizational constraint. And guess what? Again, you know, we have tons of literature out there. There are tons of people who've done research on this. So let's speak to them, right? Let's learn from them because that, that really is the way we're going to move forward. Yeah, so much of what you're speaking to is around us constraining ourselves and not wanting to feel awkward, not wanting to feel like failures, <laughs> you know, but but really breaking down those barriers, having those conversations that might feel initially awkward or unusual. I mean, that seems like part of the way forward, as you're saying. So great points. Um, we have limited time left, so I wanted to just get a couple of other questions your way here. Um, just to go to that micro level that we've we've alluded to a couple of times here. You have a section in your newsletter and on your website for the AI ethics tool of the week. So do you have a couple of favorite tools that you would recommend to data scientists and others for actually taking action on these AI practices? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I think I think the, the biggest one that's been of influence and that, that's seen me transform my own um, you know, everyday programming, let's say, is the use of uh, PyScaffold and, and the cookie cutter templates that you can integrate with PyScaffold, which actually was a discovery, well, discovered, which actually was a thing that I, uh, you know, found out um, uh, incidentally, uh, because the cookie cutter templates are, are fantastic, right? They, uh, for those who are not familiar, provide you with a standardized uh, structure for, uh, for your projects. And I'll come to why this is relevant to AI ethics in a second. But combining that with PyScaffold, what it does for your AI project, it provides you with a strong degree of consistency and, and well-defined structure, not just for your team and you know the different projects that you're probably going to embark on as a team over time, but also across your organization if this is a practice that you standardize. And of course, you can create custom templates for it as well. To me, this is super important from an AI ethics perspective because uh, it fits quite neatly into that whole MLOps mindset. And, and perhaps you know the listeners and, and you observe that I'm, I'm a lot more inclined towards processes and having yeah. things yeah. that help to standardize things. And, and it's not because I'm a control freak or you know have OCD, <laughs> but it's more because I think it lowers the barrier to putting these ideas into practice because you don't have to think, right, right? right? Someone's done the hard work of thinking how this should be done in a way that is comprehensive. So you're not always, you know, looking over your shoulder and thinking, hey, did I miss something? Is there something else that needed to be done? And you're like, hey, someone's already done most of the work. So what I can do is just start from that, right? And so I think, you know, Pi Scaffold with some of these cookie cutter templates is fantastic for, for getting that degree of consistency. Another tool that I found to be particularly useful is this um, tool from uh, Driven Data. Uh, it's an organization that puts out um, AI tools uh, and they've got this thing called Dion. Um, and so Dion is a way to create checklists for, for AI ethics uh, uh, and, and it comes with, you know, a starter checklist, again, in the interest of just, you know, getting off the ground with something without having to think too much about it. Uh, but what I've done with that checklist, more interestingly, is to uh, tailor that 
because you can provide uh, YAML templates uh, as an input and, and generate your own custom checklist, is to generate checklists that are uh, tailored to each stage of the lifecycle. When, when you start to put a checklist like that together, it, it does two things for you. One, again, it helps you be more comprehensive, you know, avoiding things that you might have forgotten. The second thing is that it puts these ideas front and center for you, right? Uh, it makes you think about them consciously because when you're creating that checklist, you can be vague because uh, if someone has to check off a, an item on that checklist, they need to know, you know, when we talk about in Agile, what is the definition of done, right? This sort of helps you uh, manifest that in a, in a very concrete way saying that, hey, you know, I've tried techniques X, Y, and Z. These are the results that I got. This was the degree of uh, balance that I was able to achieve. This was, you know, the trade-off that I got in terms of accuracy or whatever. Any of these sort of things that you would want to track, you put them down as explicit items on the checklist. And, and because we've broken down the checklist in terms of the stages of the life cycle, you can link to the items. You can cross-reference the items. The fact that the uh, you know, uh, checklist is in a YAML template, you can version control it. Uh, it, it, in fact, generates uh, markdown outputs, HTML outputs, PDF outputs. It can also generate artifacts that you can share with your non-technical stakeholders, um, yeah. Yeah. Which, which is also very useful. Terrific. Oh, these are great recommendations, and we'll be sure to put some links to those resources in the show notes, too, so folks can check them out. Great. So one question that we always ask on Data Science Mixer that um, I'm going to ask to you as well, we call this the alternative hypothesis. And so the question is, what is something that people often think is true about data science or about being a data scientist, working in data, but that you yourself have found to be incorrect? Yeah, uh, <laughs> maybe this doesn't come as a su uh, surprise to uh, the listeners of this uh, podcast, but I think a lot of people uh, think that data science is just cool research, finding new models. Turns out that's not the case, right? Uh, I mean, of course, there are people who do that work, right? Sure, uh, sure. It, it's not to say that that doesn't happen. But there's a lot more work that goes into this whole process before, right? Uh, before you even get to the modeling stage, yeah. the pre-processing of the data, the cleaning. And I'm sure, you know, everybody's gone through those stages, right? And I think one thing that people, you know, have a conception that this is dirty work or this is grunt work or this mm -hmm. is un unnecessary work even maybe and and they, they sort of feel discouraged by that right especially people who are entering the field you know have the, all these you know sort of rose tinted uh, you know uh, lens on what it's right. supposed to be and then it turns out that it's not right mm -hmm. it's like 80 or 90 percent just like whatever what they call grunt work but what's not and and i think uh, you know, the, we need to start debunking that a little bit, being a bit more transparent about perhaps what our day-to-day -day looks like, right? And, and again, this can come from, you know, some of the folks who are more senior on your team, if you're in a corporate research, you know, uh, or a corporate applied team, uh, or if you're in an academic research lab, et cetera, wherever you are, just being more forthcoming about that. And I think, again, you know, just documenting the real value that you get from doing all of this quote-unquote grunt work uh, that's where, like, at least from experience, what I've found is that that yields so many more insights than, you know, trying out a whole bunch of models and finding which one works better actually doesn't do as much for me as just really getting in with the data, right? And, and, and mucking around and, you know, seeing where there are 
you know, missing pieces of information, why certain assumptions have been made, how that data was captured, just like really getting in with the details, I think, helps to unearth a lot more insights that I've found in the long run over the AI lifecycle actually leads me to build better products than just, you know, being hyper-focused on, hey, I know, I'm not going to deal with any of that data processing stuff because that's grunt work, that's unsexy, so I'm going to focus <laughs> on the modeling. Um, mm -hmm. And and I think that's something that uh, uh, perhaps need, needs to be debunked a little bit more because I still see new people coming into the field who are disillusioned, disenchanted, discouraged mm -hmm. by right. yeah. uh, by this. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but I think that's certainly something I've heard other folks say as well. And one of our recent guests actually said that she thinks of cleaning her data as learning her data, which I thought was a nice way of reframing it a little bit at least. But Certainly, it still doesn't seem like the most glamorous thing that, that folks are doing every day. So, yeah, interesting point. Yeah. So, I know we're short on time now. Is there anything else that you would like to add to what we've talked about that we haven't gotten a chance to discuss? Or You know, all I would say, I think, is that, uh, you know, when it comes to responsible AI, it, it really is something that we should take to heart. What I would encourage the listeners of this podcast to do is, to think of this as another dimension to your AI practice in the sense that it'll help you distinguish yourself, right? If if nothing else, if you don't care about any of these values, which I hope is not the case, but <laughs> if that is the case, just think of it as, uh, you know, adding another dimension, uh, technical profile, something that will help you, uh, uh, you know, distinguish yourself, something that will help you become more effective. And, yeah. and and I think even starting with that mindset and then evolving to a place where you really start to value this is, I think, a great starting point for all of us in the field. It, it really comes down to how many of us think this is worthy of our time and then making active efforts to putting this into practice. The last thing I would say is, is start moving from principles to practice, please. I think we've, we've had enough theoretical discussions. <laughs> Try out these ideas and, mm -hmm. and share your failures. Uh, you know, tag us. Uh, let mm -hmm. us know what worked, what didn't, uh, so that we can all learn and grow together. Thanks for listening to our Data Science Mixer chat with Abhishek Gupta. Just a quick side note before we wrap up, Abhishek mentioned the Masakane NLP project, where a community is working together to strengthen NLP research on under-resourced African languages. We're excited to have Bukosi Maravate, one of the researchers, join us on an upcoming episode, so watch our feed for that. And be sure to join us for this week's cocktail conversation on the Alteryx community. It's always tough to admit to failures, especially publicly, but Abhishek talked about how important doing that is to advancing our shared knowledge. In your own data work, have you had an experience where sharing one of your own failures ultimately led to a positive outcome? Where enduring some temporary awkwardness led to a later success? Tell us about that experience. Maybe you'll inspire someone else to be more open about their own failures and help us all move forward. Share your thoughts and ideas by leaving a comment directly on the episode page at community.alterix.com slash podcast, or post on social media with the hashtag data science mixer and tag Alterix. Cheers.